Coming up on today's show, legal challenges of employers' COVID-19 vaccine mandates are starting to get arbitrated now, largely union grievances. We'll chat with the Honourable Bruce Heyman, former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, and we'll also chat with Paul Brown, former Chief of Staff in Brian Mulroney's government. He says, why can't Conservatives learn from their own mistakes? You know, as we've said throughout the beginning with the vaccine mandates and that's sort of what these convoys are, at least that's where they started. And that was sort of the how this whole thing jumped off. But we always said, oh, they're going to end up in court, right? There are going to be legal challenges of all kinds against um, the mandates and the employer mandates, government mandates, on and on the list goes. And we're starting to see some of those um, not necessarily end up in court yet, not a lot of them in court, but certainly um, unions are hearing the cases from their members and it's being arbitrated and all that stuff. So we're getting some indication about how that's being handled. So we're going to chat now with Eric Adams, who is Vice Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Alberta. Eric, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, Shay, always a pleasure. So we knew uh, ultimately a bunch of these are going to end up in court, and I guess that'll take a little bit longer. We're seeing some sort of making their way there slowly but surely, but unions are really starting to see a lot of these cases crop up among their membership and head to arbitration, right? Exactly right. So, I mean, as everybody knows, the, the pandemic has created so many uh, unique sets of, of rules that we just never seen before. And to the extent that those rules uh, came out of government, then uh, we're going to continue to see constitutional challenges to various uh, limitations on gathering, yep. on uh, various restrictions programs, on vaccination. But workplaces, uh, right from March 2020 on, have had to deal with this as a matter of of employment law and, and labor law. And so we've seen, again, a, a wide constellation of, of mandatory workplace vaccination rules in, you know, right across different uh, sectors. Um, my employer, the University of Alberta, has a, has a vaccine uh, mandate, and, and so do, uh, of course, uh, hospital workers, government workers, and then uh, lots of uh, independent uh, private employers as well. And so especially where those workplaces are unionized. Um, unions have taken the lead in challenging the reasonableness of those vaccine mandates, and in particular, where their members have been placed on leave or in some cases terminated as a result of not being vaccinated. That's resulted in, in what in labor law we call a grievance. That is, right. yeah. you, you, you place the issue squarely before a labor arbitrator, and the arbitrator has to decide whether or not that was a reasonable policy and what the outcome should be. And um, just in the last couple of months, we've seen, uh, well, more than a dozen of these arbitration decisions uh, start to trickle out into the, into the law. And what we're seeing so far, uh, the vast majority, if not all, have gone uh, in favor of the employer saying, yes, you're trying to create a safe workplace and um, this is reasonable during a pandemic and uh, they're being upheld, right? Uh, I, I would say, say that's broadly true with maybe a few uh, wrinkles thrown into the mix. Um, one of the things about uh, employment law and labor law and uh, people who uh, have a job will know this, workplaces are very different one from the other. And, of course, when an, an arbitrator is looking at the uh, law around a vaccine mandate, the question is, is that a reasonable exercise of management's power to set workplace rules? Because, of course, no you know, agreements or no contract said, you know, you'll, you'll have to, get, man, uh, you'll have to have, get a mandatory vaccination. This was really 
kind of uh, uh, the management saying, all right, well, we know it's not in the collective agreement, but uh, here's a new policy. Everyone's got to be uh, vaccinated. If, if, if your employer is setting a new policy um, that's, that hasn't been bargained for, right. well, labor law says it's got to be reasonable. And, and now we turn to that million-dollar question, well, what is reasonable? And arbitrators said, well, what's reasonable depends on the particular nature of your workplace. And they've started to look at things like, is it reasonable to think that you could fulfill your duties, for example, say, at home? Or is it reasonable that you might be subjected to a rapid testing regime? Or is it reasonable if you were placed on, say, an unpaid leave of absence um, while you remained unvaccinated, as opposed to automatically terminated. And so it's not quite a one-size-fits-all. While it's true that, that arbitrators have, and I think rightly, said, look, there's a there's a pandemic here, people. Uh, obviously, the rules of the of the game have changed yeah. a little bit. We're going to allow things that uh, wouldn't have been re- wouldn't have been considered reasonable two years ago are reasonable now, given the state of of people uh, continuing to die from this uh, disease. But an employer just simply can't go in and say, if you're not vaccinated, you know, in ten days uh, or, or you're fired. Arbitrators have said, well, look, we've got to look at what the reality is about. What is the work you do? How is it that you can do it? And is it really the case that you need to be fired if you haven't been vaccinated? And, and in those respects, uh, the decisions do differ a little bit one from the other. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, uh, like you say, it's going to be different depending on where you are. Uh, Eric, good stuff. Appreciate you joining us. And uh, we'll continue to follow this as it goes along. Shay, stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you soon. You bet. Thanks very much. Bye. That's Eric Adams, who is Vice Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Alberta. And one other thing that we've found um, is, uh, as he said, it's different depending on where you work. And, you know, you can't just, if, if there can be a reasonable concession to have somebody do their job in a safe way, some of these unions are taking a look at that. And the other consideration here, and this is where we're at. Um, And it's getting messy because of um, the political climate that we're in. But if we all just step back from that and take a look at where we are now, they said things have changed. We're in a different position now. So what's reasonable back in March of 2020 that an employer did if it was challenged now or two, three months from now, um, it may not be considered reasonable anymore because some of these things were done when we had nobody vaccinated. We had no treatments. Um, the virus was running rampant. We really had never seen it before, but we're in a much, much different position now. So the things that um, used to be considered reasonable may not be. So it's a fluid and changing situation. And I really do think, honestly, we're at a point where within the next six weeks, governments, it's already happening in a great many places, um, are lifting the restrictions and removing mandates. And we know that Alberta's government is eager to do that as well. Um, But things have gotten really, really complicated and muddy with what's going on um, with the trucker convoy. The the totalitarian left wants to fire those truck drivers. They want to fire doctors and nurses and, and cops and firefighters and soldiers and sailors and Navy SEALs. Why? Because they won't knuckle under their COVID mandates. And, and vaccine mandates, they won't obey their totalitarian dictates. And, and, and I got to say, those Canadian truckers are awesome. That's Ted Cruz, senator from Texas and perennial wannabe presidential candidate. 
Um, didn't work out well for him last time against Donald Trump. Will he jump in again? We'll have to wait and see. But he is just one of many of the Republican politicians who this week have decided to go all in with the trucker convoy. Um, and that's the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing. Um, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron DeSantis, the list goes on. The Trumpiest of the Republicans are all over this. And um, I think if you sit back and you take a look at where we are with this situation um, and just how bizarre that is that American politicians are jumping into this situation, um, it's concerning. It should be concerning anyway. Uh, Bruce Heyman was the U.S. ambassador to Canada from 2014 to 2017, and he went public this weekend sounding the alarm about this kind of American involvement in what is a Canadian situation. Um, Mr. Heyman, I appreciate you so much joining us this morning. Thank you so uh, for your time, sir. Pleasure to be here. Now, your statement this weekend, short and sweet, you said, under no circumstances should any group in the USA fund disruptive activities in Canada, period, full stop. So let's start with that, because we know there's a lot of talk about the funding of what's happening here, millions and millions of dollars coming in from the United States. Why is that so concerning to you? So, first of all, let's do some ground setting here. Canada, a separate country with its own set of rules and and government, albeit next door, albeit our best friend, albeit our greatest trading partner, albeit a lot of Americans live in Canada and Canadians live in the U.S., it's a separate government with separate rules, separate laws, and we should respect them as Americans. So that's point one. Point two, we've had no better friend or ally in the entire world. And I would say that as I got to know, you know, uh, Ken Taylor, who helped uh, bring out Americans out of Iran when we were in hostage situation and hiding out in the Canadian embassy. I knew it when I was up in Gander. And I visited Gander, where all the flights that were diverted as a result of 9-11 landed in that wonderful community that welcomed them. This is a story of a country that has been there when we've had hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes, and they've come down and helped us at every turn. You've been there for us geopolitically, regionally, and you've supported us as a country, not on a partisan way, on a nonpartisan way as a next-door neighbor, as a friend, as an ally. And so now Canada is facing um, what I consider to be a grounds for legitimate conversation and protest. We should, uh, at least as an American, I feel protests are legitimate, except when they become delegitimized. And when external forces begin funding and promoting actions against a foreign government as a result of you know, not only raising money, but encouraging outside groups to participate. And I think that the the trucker group, who may have had some legitimate feelings and the right to protest, but they have now lost the narrative. As the far right, people waving Nazi flags, uh, anti-Semitism with the Star of David, which was used to identify Jews for extermination in Nazi Germany, The Confederate flag, which was used as the basis for slavery in the United States, and the white supremacist groups that are now marching and have been throughout Ottawa, the narrative is lost. And now even, in fact, they're using a narrative of wanting to take down the government of Canada. 
So having some of the people that you mentioned, Republicans, getting on, and I, they're, they're, this isn't real Republican. This is these are Trumpists, and to get on to foment the kind of activities that are taking place, the stoppage of traffic on the Ambassador Bridge, the comments that are being made about truckers throughout your country, will hurt you as a country economically. It'll hurt you medically. It'll hurt you emotionally. But it could also hurt your standing as a government. And we lose democracy is very fragile. And right now we have a right wing group of people that are pressing on that fragility. Well, you, you say it could hurt our country, and you're absolutely right, without a doubt. But uh, just seeing what's going on today at the Ambassador Bridge between Windsor and Detroit, which is the busiest border crossing on the continent, um, it could hurt you too. I mean, if these kinds of blockades at borders continue. Oh, there's no doubt. And what do you think the real reason is? This is a proxy battle. This, That's the know, question. Look, I'd, I'd like to think that it was all in, in good faith that they were supporting, you know, people who want a voice with regard to a vaccine choice. But this is much more complicated than that. And what they're trying to do is put pressure that will lead into further pressure within the United States to cause similar kinds of protests and outcomes in our cities. Um, And so in some ways, these are dry runs for, you know, the far right Republican Party using using Canada as a testing ground. And I think this is incredibly dangerous for um, both countries. And it's dangerous for our relationship because of how important this relationship is to each other. Just how unheard of is it, though? I mean, it seems to me like we've always, like you say, Canada's always there to help. And Canada sort of sat, and I know, you know, we've held back as we watched what's gone on in the United States. And I think the U.S. has done the same thing in Canada. Like, how unheard of is it for American politicians to jump into what is essentially a domestic issue in civil unrest in Canada? It's, it's. It's a political red line that should never have been crossed. And now not only has it been crossed, but it's been breached. And now on some news networks uh, in, that, that promote more right-wing views, they, the, all night long last night, it was all about Canada and the protests and, and, the, and the support that they're lending. And so we're in a very dangerous spot. Um, where do we go? Uh, that, that's the question. I mean, I know you've got your own situation to deal with in the United States, and there's a lot of Canadians very concerned about it um, spreading into our country, and I think we're seeing that now. How do, we, how do we counter this? Well, I have a lot of confidence in Canada to counter it because I, I've, I've, in the years that I've spent there in the years since, I can tell you that regardless of party, Canadians treasure the country treasure the rule of law. And when one party wins or loses, the other party wants to get those seats and wants to fight for it, but they don't want to dismantle the country. And so I don't believe that that's what's going to end up taking place here. And I think eventually the, you know, the the Canadian government, the provincial government and the cities will, will, will deal with this appropriately. I have the confidence in that. The real question is longer term. Yeah. What are the implications of this? You've already lost your conservative leader this last week. And so what are the other implications of what goes on? And so, you know, just 
don't underestimate sometimes when you put a snowball in motion down a hill what it looks like when it gets to the bottom of the hill. And it, it we're, we're in that mode right now. I, I have always believed that, you know, the, the small minority, to ignore them, becomes the tyranny of the minority, and they can influence the majority. And we've seen this around the world in yeah. various governments where you, you think it's okay and you take it for granted. You've got to put out these burning embers as best you can before they turn into a giant conflagration. Yeah, exactly. And that's where we are. Uh, Mr. Heyman, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Be well. You too. That is um, Bruce Heyman, who is the former U.S. ambassador to Canada. And, um, and I know a lot of you will disagree with me and with him because I agree with what he's saying. I think uh, we need to be on guard for it's it's not political. I mean, I think I was thinking about it last night as I was getting ready for this discussion. I've probably supported more Republican candidates in the U.S. over the years than I have Democrats. Um, but the Republican Party today is not the Republican Party I grew up with. Um, and I know a lot of you like the direction of the Republican Party now, but populism is a risky thing. And um, having American influence, um, not just the politicians, but the media ecosystem jumping all over this and the power that they hold. Um, you know, I mean, Fox News runs this. This has been Fox News' big story for 10 days now. They don't cover other Canadian news, but they're all over this. And we see, you know, the usual players from the political world jumping in. So it's something that troubles me. I'm not going to lie. I don't like it. I don't want that American influence in our country. I, I, I don't know how you can look at what's going on in the United States and say, yeah, let's do that here. We often talk about it on the show here, the fact that, you know, the conservative parties, both in our province and federally, um, in many ways are their own worst enemy. And, it, and it's a cycle that repeats and repeats and repeats. And we've asked the question many, many times here, why <laughs> is it just the nature of the beast when it comes to conservative politics in Canada that you have the big tent ambition, but you have warring factions within the big tent and eventually it tears the tent open. But, um, you know, we, we, we kick it around and we talk about it. Somebody who's been on the inside for a long time, front and center, dealing with this very issue is Paul Brown, former chief of staff in Brian Mulroney's government, He's worked on numerous provincial and federal conservative campaigns. He's a principal at Campbell Strategies and uh, delighted that he could join us this morning. Paul, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. It's great to join you this morning, Shay. And you captured the problem for us conservatives at the federal level. Uh, we like to fight. We can no Absolutely. There's no question about it. And you recently wrote a great piece in the Globe and Mail that's uh, titled, As a Conservative... It pains me that we aren't learning from our mistakes. Now, I think I know the answer to this question. I think we all do. But what is this mistake? It's the fighting, right? It's the fighting. And, you know, to win elections, you have to fish in a big pond. If you're only fishing in a small pond, you cannot win elections. And that our track record of success has been when we've gone after more fish, more voters, and it's not that people across Canada are somehow in love with liberals and liberalism. They're not. We've succeeded in province after province of across Canada in electing conservative governments when you offer them a clear conservative option. It's a winnable option. 
it's at the federal level, man, we do like to fight. So what happens? I mean, like you say, uh, we have, you know, Stephen Harper, Brian Mulroney. There are people who seem to come up with some way of selling conservative politics in this country that works. Is it is it leadership? Is it that simple, Paul, to bring everybody together, at least for the time being, and win an election? Yes, it's a, it, leadership counts. Leadership is important in politics. And and to be to be honest, I mean we have uh, in the uh, selection process to get leaders. There's no question that our base, those people who join uh, the party uh, in each of the ridings across Canada, they tend to be more small C conservatives than uh, what used to be called progressive conservative. That, there's there's a truth to that, um, and those people have to be respected in their views and outlook. Mm-hmm. But if we move too far to the right, particularly on social policy issues, and that really seems to be the one, the issue that bedevils us and has for a long time, we cannot win elections. It's just a simple fact of life. And the numbers, as I pointed out in my article, I've been alive for 66 years, and through too many of those years, there's been liberal governments in Ottawa. Paul, I can't. The good people of Alberta see the. <laughs> have a different view and no conservative uh, time and time again. They do, but but you know what's interesting is we're seeing the exact same thing happen at the provincial level right now, where our premier is under intense pressure from, uh, like you say, the social conservatives within his party, the, r- the rural MLAs within his own caucus. So, I mean, that same dynamic plays out at the provincial level, too. Yeah, and we, we had a bit of it during our leadership campaign in Ontario, and you see it across, you know, you see it in Quebec, you see it everywhere. Those views have to be respected and listened to, but they cannot dominate the conversation or the policy agenda of the uh, Conservative Party. Stephen Harper was the guy who most understood it. You know, in 2004, you know, the Liberals were ripe for the plucking in terms of losing. We lost because he was associated with being an anti-abortion candidate, uh, fairly or unfairly. He learned in 2006 and changed course dramatically. He offered up a conservative agenda. No one is going to say that Stephen Harper was a liberal light. No. It was a strong conservative agenda, but without the social policy stuff. That is so anathema to many people in the country, particularly in the cities. You're absolutely right. I mean, I I, I don't think you can get elected if if you're dragging that weight around anymore. So... is there? Is that what the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada has to do? Does he have to say, listen, it hurts, and I'm sorry, but we just can't have that be part of this party anymore? You need to go find somewhere else? We're leaving that behind permanently? No, they, they can be part of the party. It just <clears throat> can't be part of the party agenda or policy agenda. It was never was for all the years of Brian Mulroney's uh, regime and also for Stephen Harper's uh, government. You never saw those issues being advanced. They can be respected, and those people can be part of the party and they can be listened to. It cannot be part of the agenda for getting elected. It's a losing agenda. And it's, you know, you you can even be a believer in those views, but you have to look at the facts eventually. And, you know, if you want to give the Liberals a gift, that's what you do. You wrap yourself in those causes. And I think, you know, I'm biased, obviously, I think... Trudeau has been a disastrous leader as prime minister. Uh, but if we want to get replace him, we need to know how to win. 
Well, I mean, I said going into the last election campaign and even the one before it, I mean, if you can't take out this government at this point, you've got some serious self-examination to do because I've never seen a government more you know, ripe for attack. I mean, the avenues of attack were endless heading into this election, but it just didn't happen. Shay, you're right partially. They're, they're ripe for attack. So going in the election, and this has been a bit of the false uh, narrative. You know, I, I am on the inside, as it were, a little bit. Yeah. So going into the campaign, the cons- you know, governments in Canada generally aren't beaten by an opposition. They lose. Canadians lose faith in them, right? They fall. And you, as an opposition leader, have to offer a clear alternative, and you have to get out of the way of them falling. Going into the last election campaign, the Conservatives had two challenges. While me and my friends and my group of friends obviously didn't like the Liberals, in the polling, Canadians didn't hate them. They, right. they, that urge to get rid of the bums, which happens every 10 years or so, that wasn't showing up in the polling. So number one, get rid of the bums wasn't as strong as the narrative says. And number two, because of the <clears throat> the Trump nonsense in the United States, the conservative brand was badly damaged in, in Canada. We were wearing some of the garbage that Trump unleashed. And that was a challenge for Aaron O'Toole in the campaign, no question. And his quickness of getting out the gate early with a policy agenda worked for a while until COVID struck. You know, you mentioned that, the conservative brand, and take a look at what's going on in our country right now, Paul. Um, what is grabbing headlines in terms of... Conser- you've got you just got an interim leader that was uh, appointed, but we're hearing more, I think, today about Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis and all these Republicans from, you know, and, and, and this the far right, what's going on right now. And whether whether it's accurate, whether it's fair, doesn't matter. This is being called a conservative movement. What's happening yes, right now in our country? That, Shay, you've hit the nail on the head. We embrace those that Republican nonsense. We're dead as a party. The the convoy. Uh, I, I get the frustration. I get the anxiety. I think Trudeau uh, made a huge mistake by making a mandate for truckers to uh, be vaccinated. Really, truckers are going to spread the vaccine in a truck going across. It's just nonsense. It was just sanctimonious nonsense by Trudeau. That being said, this convoy issue could be a poison chalice for the Conservative Party. Uh, There was a terrific speech in the House of Commons yesterday by one of our Conservative MPs, uh, Raquel Danko, and I urge people to listen to what she said. There's a way through this thing that rejects that crazy American stuff and also rejects the sanctimonious of uh, our Liberal Prime Minister Trudeau. And Raquel spoke beautifully in the House of Commons about bringing Canadians together in common sense and moving forward. And uh, I urge people to listen to what she said. So right now, I mean, as, as we see come up every once in a while with alarming regularity, it's another transition point for the Conservative Party of Canada. We have an interim leader and another leadership race, third uh, in the past few years. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, is there somebody, what, what, what would be the best choice? Not a name necessarily. I mean, if you have one you want to throw out, go ahead. But in terms of what a leader would embody and bring to the table, what does the Conservative Party need right now? Well, my own view is that there's not going to be a leadership race. I think uh, the decision by the caucus uh, was a... Um, uh, Coronation, to, if you will. Sort of a, yeah, it was a palace coup. 
Um, and uh, they knew what they were voting for. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think this talk that there's going to be a race, I just don't think that's possible. They saw the president of the Conservative Party say that we need to choose a leader quickly. Well, that gives Pierre all the advantage in the world. So is he and, the guy? Uh, I, he's he's going to be the leader, if, if you ask me right now. I think the only person out there in the Conservative movement who could challenge him would be someone like Jean Charest, uh, a former uh, leader of the Conservative Party uh, who has the kind of public identification and strength. But, uh, you former know, Liberal Jean, Premier. I can't see him. <laughs> well, yeah, he was. Well, he was. He came in because the Liberals made a mess of the referendum, <laughs> That's right? right. <laughs> he, you know, he was. They begged him, the Liberals and the Conservatives, because they would have lost that referendum that would have torn the country apart. Again, all because of Trudeau and Trudeau the Elder and. And the, and, the, and the liberal brand, so he had no choice. He had to respond to that. But he's a conservative in his soul and his heart and his beliefs, and um, much like they have liberals or conservatives out in B.C., in the same case it was Jean Charest in Quebec. But I don't see him stepping forward, frankly, and I think the leadership is uh, all but over, and I, I can't see a race. Uh, okay, so the final question, and I'll let you get out of here, is Pierre Polyev the guy? We've talked about a lot of things that the Conservative Party has to do. Is Pierre Polyev the leader that can do those things? So, I, I think so. Uh, Pierre, I, I, I don't know Pierre that well. Um, you know, he's, he's smart. He knows how to communicate. And I think that he's going to have to prove himself, both to Conservatives and to the nation at large, that he can lead the country in a way that Pierre Trudeau can't. And uh, I think that's up to Pierre and the party. And uh, I was encouraged, as I say, by our M- uh, an MP from Winnipeg who spoke so beautifully, uh, Raquel Danko, the other day in the House of Commons. So it's up to Pierre, and he's going to have to prove himself, as every leader should. Yeah. Great discussion, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. We'll do this again. Thanks, Jay. Look forward to it. Keep well out there. Thank you very much, sir. That is Paul Brown, former chief of staff in Brian Mulroney's government. Worked on a bunch of different provincial and federal conservative campaigns. Uh, Now a principal at Campbell Strategies. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.